Almighty God, come now and enliven and apply the preaching of the scriptures of God to our hearts and minds this morning. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would give me utterance, grant me clarity and conviction uh, under the authority of your word to proclaim your word and grant us all, Lord, tender and salt, open hearts, Lord, so that the application of biblical truth will be, Lord, sweeter than honey in the honey. And Lord, we will be sure to give you thanks. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I hope you were listening to the gospel passage about the cleansing of the temple that Father David read to us this morning. The gospel passage from John this morning contains something that really is shocking in a way that we probably don't have categories for. We tend to think of Jesus' cleansing of the temple in terms of Jesus being really, really upset about the corruption that was inherent in turning worship into a commercial transaction. But listen, by stopping the sale of animals and the changing of money to proper temple coins, more than just making a, a statement about the corruption of selling and buying in the temple, Jesus is actually stopping, and maybe for as long as 30 minutes, maybe longer, the very heart of temple worship. And this is shocking because, as N.T. Wright says, the temple was the beating heart of Judaism. <clears throat> it was the center of worship and music, of politics and society, of national celebration and mourning. It was the place where Israel's God, Yahweh, had promised to live in the midst of his people. Even centuries before this event, Simeon the Just, high priest uh, during the 3rd century B.C., this is from the Mishnah, uh, he said this, By three things, by three things is the world upheld, is the world upstained, uh, 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 sustained by the Torah, the law, by the temple service, and by deeds of loving kindness. So the worship that was occurring in the temple was central to everything that was going on in the life of Judaism, and Jesus stops it for at least half an hour, more than likely. So for Jews in the first century, the temple was, was this. It was the intersection. It was the overlapping of heaven and earth. God was seen as, and indeed was locally and personally present with his people through that temple, Herod's temple, the second temple in Jerusalem. And the temple was where God's people were reconciled to God through the sacrificial system that was ordained by who? It was ordained by God in the Torah. So that's how they experienced reconciliation and atonement with God. There's no way to overstate the importance of the temple in first century Judaism. And likewise, there is no way of overestimating, overstating what the temple represented to Jesus. That's what led to Jesus' dramatic actions in the temple. Zeal for your house has consumed me, his disciples remembered. And before we delve any further, let me just point out that Matthew and Mark and Luke, the, what we call the synoptic gospels, have Jesus cleansing the temple at the end of his ministry. <clears throat> but, God, but John, the gospel of John, has, 
has a cleansing happening here at the very beginning of his ministry. Now, John has no problem with adjusting chronology in order to making a theological point. He just, time don't mean nothing to John. He doesn't, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. If he needs to make a point, he will adjust chronology to do that. I think he does anyway, and I think other people who study the scriptures do as well. But this is not one of those times. This is not one of those times. Based on the fact that there are deeply significant differences between, John, between John's account and the synoptic accounts, I am convinced that Jesus actually cleansed the temple twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end. And they had different reasons and different things were said and different actions were taken at both times. And another point of clarity here, the animal sellers and the money changers are probably in the court, what we would call the court of the Gentiles, the court of the Gentiles, which was the outer precinct of the temple. But as far as people were concerned, all of that area, uh, the, the outer court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, and the court of the Israelites, the actual temple uh, it, proper itself, the holy place and the holies of holies, were all set apart and holy to God. All of the temple was holy. So why is Jesus so angry in this passage? Now, I've heard people try to say, oh, he really wasn't angry. No, Jesus was pretty put out by the whole experience. What makes Jesus act so un-Jesus-y in this moment? Well, this is what it says again. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So in this first cleansing, here's what he is bringing to the forefront. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So in this cleansing of the temple, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there is no mention of any corruption regarding the selling of animals or changing of money. He doesn't say in this cleansing, you have made this a den of robbers. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all people, but you have made it a den of robbers. He doesn't say that. In fact, it could capture the sense of what's going on here, perhaps in, in greater clarity to say this. It's like Jesus is saying, how dare you? How dare you make my father's house a house of trade? How dare you? So he's not angry because they are buying and selling stuff. This great comrade, Jesus does not believe in commerce. No, it's not that. He's not, he's not going all socialist on us. By the way, I mean, all of his friends were like commercial fishermen, for crying out loud. I've, uh, I've lived among commercial fishermen, and they are very much into commerce. So, they are, so that's not the problem. What Jesus is incensed about is that they have reduced, this is important, they have reduced the place where the very glory of the living God was manifest on earth to the equivalent of a religious Walmart. So Jesus is brought to righteous indignation as displayed nowhere else in the Gospels on this one point, and here it is, essentially is this. You have trivialized, you have trivialized God by trivializing the locus, the, the location of the worship of God, the very place where heaven and earth intersect. You have turned it into something cheap and tawdry 
Now here's the starting point of application for us. What would Jesus say about our attitude of worship in the place where we encounter the very presence of the living God in word and sacrament? Folks, I, uh, I know there are different approaches to what happens in a church on Sunday morning. And, in, and if, to be quite fair, back you know, 20, 25 years ago, people were saying, we're actually not going to make Sunday morning the center of Christian worship, but rather it will be kind of a connecting point with disconnected people, people who are disconnected from Jesus and his church. Now, I disagree with taking uh, the, what I think is the bib clear biblical witness of what was going on in the early church, the first day of the week being the Lord's Day, day set apart for worship, and 2,000 years of Christian tradition and saying we have a better idea. I disagree with that, but the intentions were good. But the byproduct of that maybe was not so good in that we began, I think, to trivialize what is actually happening here on Sunday morning. So what would Jesus' reaction be to our attitude about the place where we worship, where we encounter the very presence of the living God through his word and sacrament? Would it be, how dare you bring your latte into this place? How dare you turn the temple of God into a coffee shop? Or how dare you, this could never happen, not certainly, not, not in... Not in North Carolina during March Madness. This could never, ever happen. But how dare you check your ACC tournament scores in the middle of worship on your smartphone? Or how dare you, how dare you check your Facebook uh, during the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments just because you want to see if somebody liked you, liked what you had to say? Or how dare you worship me, oh, five or six Sundays of a year, and then tell people you're a regular church attender, that you regularly meet with me in worship. So how we gather for the purpose of, purpose of worshiping God, how we do this this morning reveals, indicates what we actually believe about the God we worship. So much of what we do here this morning reflects our genuine attitude concerning the God, the reality, glory, and majesty of the God we worship. Now, not only were Jesus' actions disturbing, his claims following the, uh, the very first ever Temple Mount cattle drive and money toss are equally shocking. Jesus claims, here it is, Jesus claims that he personally is all that the temple purports to be. John chapter 2, verses 19 and 21, so back in that gospel reading, Jesus answered them, you know, by, give us a sign, tell us what right you have to do these things. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So remember what the temple was? A place where heaven and earth overlap. In Jesus, the kingdom of God is intersecting in Jesus personally. God's kingdom is intersecting with this world. The kingdom was where God's physical presence was located, if you want to put it that way. In Jesus, God is physically present to his people. In fact, the word Jesus uses for temple, naos, means the actual 
dwelling place, the holy place, the holy of holies. He doesn't refer to the entire precinct. He specifically refers to that building where the Jewish people believed that the presence of God was locally with them on earth. The temple was where sacrifices ordained by God were made. Those sacrifices that reconciled sinful Israel to God. And in Jesus, God reconciled his his people through through the sacrifice he had ordained before the foundation of the world. Behold the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. Now listen, in 70 A.D., the Romans destroyed the temple, Herod's temple in Jerusalem, where these events are occurring that we read about this morning. Herod's temple was actually finally completed, finally completed, last brick laid, last of the details done in 63 A.D. And for seven brief years, that temple stood in all its finished glory. But the the Jewish people challenged Roman authority, and the Romans raised, destroyed the temple, raised the temple to the ground in retaliation. And yet, decades before that temple of Herod was destroyed, Jesus challenged both the established power of Rome and the Jewish authorities. And so Rome tried to destroy that temple. They nailed the living temple of God to a cross with the approval of the Jewish high priest and the Sanhedrin. And after doing their worst to him, three days later, that temple, Jesus, was back from the grave, glorified and unstoppable, and he has been making a mess of empires and governments and established religion ever since. This temple keeps working in the world. And what's more, when we accept Christ, when we receive him as Lord and Savior, he gives us the privilege of being little temples too. God the Holy Spirit. Don't you know it says in 1 Corinthians that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit resides in my life, and I become a place, you become a place, baptized, born again, follower of Jesus Christ, where heaven and earth meet and we are welcomed into into God's family business of becoming agents of reconciliation. So implicit in the fact that Jesus takes it upon himself to drive out the money changers and the the animal sellers from from the temple is in fact Jesus, listen, claiming authority to say what, is, what goes on the temple. When, in, in the temple, when Jesus drives out the money changers and the sheep and oxen and doves, he is saying that he has, he is taking upon himself, arrogating to himself the authority, the shocking authority to say what is going on in the temple. And that's exactly what those in charge of the temple are saying when they asked him for a sign. And this is what they're asking him. Who made you the boss of the temple? Hey, Jesus, who made you the boss of what's going on here? Jesus' actions are actually making an extraordinary claim. First of all, cleansing the temple was recognized as an act that Messiah would do when Messiah appeared. Messiah would cleanse the temple, and then the presence and glory of God, of Yahweh, would return to his people. 
So if Je- they're saying this, the religious leadership is saying this, hey, Jesus, show us your Messiah ID. Show us some ID. Give us a sign. The only one, actually, though, who, the only one who has authority to do this is, in essence, the one who is the Lord of the temple. Jesus is claiming, and he's going to make it very specific, Jesus claims the divine right to dictate what happens in the temple, and what is more, he is doing it as more than merely a human Messiah. He calls the temple, listen, this is how he does it. He calls the temple, my father's house. How dare you make my father's house, and literally in the Greek, an emporium. How dare you make my father's house a shopping mall? And thus he claims equality with God. See, what no one realizes in that moment that we read about in John's Gospel is that the one, here it is, the one who is worshipped in the temple has just shown up and judged what is going on in his temple. Unless we fail to recognize what is being claimed by Jesus when he calls God his Father in this way, that gets cleared up in John chapter 5. John 5 verse 18, if you're Looking at your scriptures, you can turn over to John, just a few pages to John 5, 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, and here it is, but he was even, but he was even calling God his own Father. And this is what the scriptures say, scriptures say, even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. God. So there's no way of saying that Jesus didn't make claims of divinity if one is to take the witness of the, Old, of the New Testament, of the New Testament seriously. Jesus is making a radical claim of authority. He's basically saying this, this is my house, this is my temple, and I can clean it up if I want to. This is my temple, and I can clean it up if I want to. Now, here is the connection, I think, for us this morning. So please Attend carefully, brothers and sisters. When Jesus exerts his authority in our lives, a lot of times when he comes into our lives, just like when he came into the temple, Jesus will make a mess. When he comes into our lives, he makes a mess. When Jesus shows up and expresses his authority, he can mess up your relationships, your job, your education, your resources, your retirement plans. He turns over tables and he scatters our very carefully herded livestock. Shane Claiborne similarly has said, he says this, you may know him, he's a, he's a part of what was called the uh, new monastic movement. Now it's kind of the older new monastic movement. Been around for about 20 years, I guess. He says, I know there are people out there who say, My life was such a mess, I was drinking and partying and sleeping around, and then I met Jesus, and my whole life came together. God bless those people. But for me, I had it together. I used to be cool. (laughs) I was prom prom king, for heaven's sake. And then I met Jesus, and he wrecked my life. The more I read the gospel, the more he he messed it up turning everything I believed in, valued, and hoped for upside down. 
I am still recovering from my conversion. <laughs> I ended up at Eastern University outside Philadelphia studying youth ministry and sociology. I had heard one of my college professors say, being a Christian is about choosing Jesus and deciding to do something incredibly daring with your life. I decided to take Jesus up on the offer. The adventure has taken me from the streets of Calcutta, where I worked with Mother Teresa, to the war zone of Iraq, where I lived through the bombing of Baghdad. Following the footsteps of Jesus, I can't remember what it feels like to be bored. He might make a mess, but it will not be boring. Paul said it like this in Galatians 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't know if you remember, but a few years ago, and it was just, this was tragic, uh, Rick and Kay Warren, I think Rick Warren is the real deal. I hope I'm not disappointed by that. But Rick and Kay Warren's son, Matthew, took his own life. It's been a few years ago now. And in the aftermath, um, Kay, his mother, said this. He said, God is asking us to become gloriously ruined. God is asking us to become gloriously ruined, she declared. So much, that we, so much so that we would follow him to the end, no matter where that end might be. I don't know what the end is, where it is, or where the edges are. I don't know what he will ask or demand, but to follow him means I will follow him to wherever the end is. I am a gloriously ruined woman. And if Jesus Christ comes into your life and you receive him and follow him, you will become a gloriously ru ruined man or woman. He will overturn the tables that you have set up. Your furniture will get moved. The things that you think are precious, he's going to say, I have something more valuable to that, than that to replace this with. I am more precious, more to be desired than all of the, than the than the spreadsheet that you have made for your life. Oh, Jesus loves it when we make those spreadsheets about what's going to happen in our life. He just says, I take that as a dare. Hey, y'all, watch this. You could end up being a pastor in Winston-Salem. You never can tell. But it's so, it is infinitely more precious, infinitely more desirable, infinitely more joyful, richer, deeper than the shadow plans, the shallow plans of ease and comfort that we would choose. You are made for more than that. You are made to be gloriously ruined so that the glory of God might shine through your life. That's such good news. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and the living God will cleanse that temple, and that's what he's doing this Lent. Turning over tables, scattering livestock. He wants so much more than you want for yourself. Oh, Lord, we prayed it this morning. Thou hast made us for thyself. 
and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. He keeps coming like that. He wants for heaven to intersect with earth. His desire is what we read at the end of the book in Revelation. And I, John, saw saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God to make heaven and earth united. And he does it this morning. And he does it right there at that table. Where's the temple? Jesus is the temple. His body is the temple. He said this indicating his body. Where did he say we would find his body in this between time as we wait for the consummation of the age and the final appearing of our Lord and Savior when he comes in great glory at the end of the age? He said this at the table on the night when he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body. After supper, he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, This is my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. Brothers and sisters, when we come to this table this morning, you're opening the gates to the temple of your life. For Jesus, the great overturner of furniture and a livestock wrangler to come into your life to make a glorious mess. What he will do in you, if you will, by the grace of God, allow him to do it, is more than we could ever ask or think. Let him make a mess of your life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.